You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. This podcast was recorded at 1.30 p.m. on November 5th, 2020. Today on 1050 Baskin, we are extremely grateful to have the opportunity again to talk with Professor Barry Burden, political science professor and director of the Elections Research Center here at UW-Madison. We are excited to talk to Professor Burden for his analysis of Tuesday's elections results where we are today moving forward and his take on whether the pre-election polls were once again out of whack from what we have seen play out across the country in both the presidential, Senate, and House races. There's so much to talk about today with Professor Burden, so let's jump right in. First things first, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Burden. We are all pretty exhausted, as I imagine you are as well, so let's jump right into it. I want to know what your thoughts were on election night as Results started to pour in. The initial results were surprising. Uh, Trump, I think, overperformed from what most of us were expecting. He performed better than a lot of the polls were indicating, at least in the results we have so far. And uh, Republicans also did well further down the ballot. They did not apparently lose the Senate, at least not immediately, even though most of the predictions were that the Democrats would pick up enough seats there to become a majority. Uh, I don't think they've given up much control of state legislatures. They may have actually made gains in the House of Representatives. That's still to be determined, but um, really not the kind of disaster scenario that some have projected for Trump and the Republicans. Uh, I, th I think Biden is going to eke this out, as we may discuss, but it's not going to be a landslide victory. It will be a kind of normal election result. Were you surprised then by the amount of Republican voters, it seemed, you know, were really energized and got out on election day. Yeah, you know, I, I was skeptical of some of the projections that people were making based on the early vote. That was so heavily for Biden, it was tilted very strongly towards the Democrats. In part, I think because Democrats were just taking the pandemic more seriously, and so were more inclined to vote early and by mail. But even people who were voting in person early and waiting in long lines, which is really no safer than voting at a polling place on election day, just showed, I think, a lot of enthusiasm among Democrats. But I think there was a tendency to kind of overgeneralize from that. Um, I was saying in the days leading up to the election that one of the uncertainties was how much of the Trump vote was going to show up on election day. He was counting on it. Uh, but without the regular face-to-face -face campaign activity that we're accustomed to, even with his rallies and advertising and other things, it didn't feel like a normal campaign season. And it just, I think, was unclear how much of his core support was going to turn out on election day. And they appear to have turned out in, in pretty good numbers. Uh, like I said, I think he's performed well in states that matter, in swing states. He, he's going to lose the national popular vote probably by a larger margin than Hillary Clinton did. So it doesn't mean the, the majority of the country is in favor of Donald Trump over Joe Biden, but it does mean that they, he kept it close in these states that are being narrowly decided. 
And it kind of sounds like you're starting to allude to this already, but then how do you think this thing is going to shake out? I mean, we're kind of in this weird purgatory where it seems like we're really, really close to finding out the results. And there seems to be like a lot of data that we have to look at and try to project how these final electoral votes are going to come in. But of course, there's still a lot that we don't know. But it sounds like that you have some thoughts on how this might end up and who the next president might be. So how do you think this is going to come out? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Let me just preface it for later listeners. Uh, it's 1.30 on Thursday, November 5th. And by 2.30, we may have new information. And certainly by tomorrow and the weekend, states like Nevada and Pennsylvania will mostly be wrapped up. So we're going to get to a conclusion pretty quickly here. So I'm just a little bit ahead <laughs> of, the, of the news. Uh, you know, according to the states where there's a consensus among media outlets that have been called or projected for Biden, he's sitting at 253 electoral votes. You need 270 to be elected president outright. There are a lot of paths for Biden and Harris to put that together. Uh, I think Pennsylvania, which right now is showing a lead for Trump, is eventually going to flip in the next 24 hours, maybe even later today. Uh, those votes that are coming in now are mostly male votes and mostly from the Philadelphia area, which is a heavily Democratic region. People have made projections of where that is just likely to go, given the incremental changes we've seen over the last two days. Uh, it may seem hard to believe if you, if you look at the results now. Uh, the New York Times, for example, is showing Trump with almost a two-point lead in Pennsylvania. Uh, but, but I think it's likely to flip. And uh, the Democrats there have projected that they think they'll win by triple digits. Uh, Michigan early on looked like it was for Trump, but uh, within a day or so had turned the other direction. So if PA ends up on Biden's side, that's the end of it. That's 20 electoral votes. That would put him at 273. Anything Helsey gets is gravy and I think helps build a kind of legitimacy uh, for his victory. Uh, but I think it's also likely that he ends up winning in Nevada. Again, if you look at current results, I'm just taking the New York Times as an example, he's ahead by about a point. There are about 100,000 ballots outstanding, we just heard today. Um, those are mostly mail ballots, mostly from the Las Vegas region. Those are gonna be heavily Democratic. I don't think there's enough for Trump in that to overturn what's gonna happen there. So you give Biden that, and now he's not at 273, if he's got Pennsylvania and Nevada, but he's at 279, if my math is correct. Um, the other three remaining states are Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina. Arizona has been called by Fox for Biden. That may have been a little premature. I, th I think we're not quite sure where this is gonna end up. It's close. Uh, most of the votes are coming out of Maricopa County, which is Phoenix, that's the population center. Biden is ahead. I, it's not clear if the votes coming out of Maricopa are going to be from parts of the city of Phoenix that are very favorable to Biden or whether it's gonna be suburbs or something else. Um, mail votes that were cast very early in Arizona came from Democrats, but mail ballots that got dropped off right before election day tended to be more Republican. Looks like those are more predominant in the mix. So it, it's possible that Arizona will go Biden's way, but that the additional votes that are going to come in are actually going to tighten it up. Um, I think it's more likely to be a Biden state than a Trump state, but uh, we're just not quite sure. Georgia, North Carolina, we don't know. Those have been tightening by the moment. We're down to, I think, about a 13,000 vote margin in Georgia with 25,000 votes left. Uh, <laughs> we, we don't know. So 
I, I do think Biden is likely to win the Electoral College, very likely to win the Electoral College, well above 270, uh, pushing maybe 300 as a high ceiling if everything goes his way. Um, you know, the, the picture really does change from day to day. And, and a lot of us were saying that before the election, just what things look like on election night will not be how the final result turns out. That's especially true for the popular vote where Biden's lead is going to continue to grow. Um, but, I, but I think he's in a very good place to be the next president. Thank you for that analysis. But then also kind of speaking of how things looked before election night, one thing that I feel like we as spectators have been looking at really closely in this election are the polls. Because of course, after 2016, there's been incredible attention on how the polls behave and how reliable they are in terms of uh, both the tool of analysis and prediction, and then how we should consider them and look at them heading into elections. And so far, while of course, given the caveat that some results are still coming in and we don't have a complete picture of what the election actually looks like, there's been some mixed reviews of the polls. And uh, certainly here in Wisconsin, it seems like the race was much narrower than expected. So I wanna ask, how are you kind of feeling about this uh, performance review of the polls after a lot of increased skepticism has been paid to them since 2016. Are criticisms of the polls overstated or do you feel like maybe there's another reckoning that we might have to have with this technique? Well, uh, we could do several podcasts on this topic, I suspect. And I don't have complete answers for you because we're just sitting here 48 hours after the election. Uh, I was surprised that the popular vote looks like it's deviating. so far from what the polls were saying within states. Now, many of these states are not finished with their counts. We won't have certified the vote for weeks in a lot of places. Um, so I wouldn't want to judge the Pennsylvania polls today by where Pennsylvania sits. But I think in Wisconsin, we have a pretty good picture of what the result will be. It's about a little less than a one percentage point victory for Biden. Uh, polls were not showing that. Uh, polls that my center, the Elections Research Centers conducted, showed Biden with leads of four or five in the fall and then actually growing to nine points in our last October survey. That put us about in the middle of the pack. I, th I think the narrowest margin I saw here was about a four point lead, maybe from the Marquette poll. Uh, I also saw a 17 point lead from the ABC poll, which is actually a high quality telephone poll. Um, so what things do we know? Um, we know that there was really no difference between internet polls and telephone polls. So it's not about trouble getting people on the phone or who is on the internet or anything like that. They were sort of equally off. Um, we know it's not the result of there being a lot of low quality polling from fly-by-night polling operations. There was some of that in 2016. There's some of that this year, but I mentioned Marquette, ABC, New York Times, Siena, which had an 11 point lead for Biden in Wisconsin. So lots of really good experienced pollsters putting a lot of resources into this. Also, we're pretty off the mark. And uh, it was surprising to me because I was saying before the election that a lot of the things that led to the misfire four years ago had been were different this year. To be, to be honest, polling wasn't really improved over the last four years. There are very minimal changes being made in the polling technology, but I thought the electoral environment was going to set up for a better prediction for a few reasons. One, and I think David Cannon talked about some of these in his last appearance on the show, fewer third-party voters, fewer undecided voters, 
very stable, consistent, durable leads for Biden that were not wavering They were the way they were four years ago. A Democratic nominee who was better liked than the Democratic nominee four years ago. And an incumbent. This is a referendum on the incumbent. And that tends to solidify people's views because they know him well, whereas four years ago it was an open seat with two people who had not been president before. So all those conditions I thought would lead to more accurate polls right now, it doesn't look like that's the case. Now, there are some states where the polls were pretty good. Georgia and North Carolina are both knife-edge states right now, undecided. They're probably going to be decided by less than a percentage point. I think the polling was saying about that in those, in those two states, pretty close. In Minnesota, Biden had a big victory. It was about, about nine points. That's exactly what the polls were saying. So it's not a consistent story that we can tell everywhere. And here's one of the more interesting ones. In Iowa, uh, Trump won big, about nine points. That's what he had won by four years before. The polling was showing it to be a very competitive state with a competitive Senate race. But right at the end, there was one poll from the pollster Ann Seltzer, who works for the Des Moines Register. She is the pollster of record in Iowa. She has a long track record, does high quality telephone polls. And it was a real outlier. It showed Trump ahead, I think, by seven. And it was dismissed. And I actually looked at some of the internals of that poll, and I was also skeptical. It did not weight the sample to be reflective of the state in terms of education, which is the number one recommendation coming out of 2016. So that made a lot of people dismiss it. How can someone be doing a telephone poll and not weight by education when we know that's been so important? And she got it right. So maybe that's luck, or maybe there's a lesson in that about something we're not capturing about the Trump voter that's very specific to Trump or something about democratic leaning voters. And I think this is maybe what was going on in the surveys that I oversaw here. Uh, they seem eager to express their plans to vote. They come up as likely voters. Um, so I don't know on what side of the aisle the problem is happening, uh, but it's clearly happening. Uh, I I'm, I'm still skeptical of the shy Trump theory uh, from four years ago. There's not a lot of evidence for that either then or this year. The New York Times has explored that to some degree and not really turned it up. Uh, the surveys that I oversaw actually make sure that the sample was representative of the vote from four years ago. So we asked people, how did you vote in 2016? And we make sure we have enough Trump voters in there. And it's not too tilted towards Clinton. And even doing that doesn't solve the problem. Uh, I will just point out that the polls were pretty good in the midterm election in 2018. No big misses. They were pretty good in the Democratic primaries this spring. Pretty good. And it looks like at, in the national uh, popular vote, they're going to be in the ballpark as well once all, everything is totaled up. But there's still something amiss in particular states. You know, I want to say in the upper Midwest, but it's not because Minnesota was about right. Um, Florida was off, which was decided early. Um, there's gonna be some soul searching about what the methodologies are, are getting wrong on this particular question, and even if they're good for many other purposes. And why do we do polling? Is it of great value to have these kind of looks ahead or you know, snapshots of the electorate at a given point in time? Um, so I, I don't have immediate answers for you. I'm not sure anybody in the polling world does, uh, but this will be something we spend a lot of time on over the next few years. The night was not in the Democrats' favor in many of their Senate races, but they did manage to flip. Colorado, Cory Gardner lost to John Hickenlooper. 
But then Doug Jones lost to Tommy Tuberville. What has your take on the Senate races been like and how they differed maybe from the national race? It's not an easy pattern to understand. Um, you know, there were a couple obvious ones. Cory Gardner going down in Colorado, we all thought was going to happen. Mark Kelly beating Martha McSally in Arizona. That was foreshadowed. And Doug Jones going down in Alabama. Democrats don't win there. So he was out. Uh, but there were other states that were complete surprises. And the most surprising was Susan Collins holding on in Maine. She was running against a well-funded and I think pretty competent candidate who was Speaker of the Maine House of Representatives, Sarah Gideon. She had raised a lot of money. Maine is now a pretty blue state and went for Trump. I'm sorry, went for Biden by double digits this year. And yet Susan Collins won by double digits, which means there was a tremendous amount of split ticket voting of people voting for Joe Biden at the top of the ticket and then Susan Collins next. Now, Maine has a kind of independent spirit to it. They tend to vote for third party candidates. They have ranked choice voting. So even the final results there are gonna take a while to work through that system. But that was totally shocking and it ran against all the polls in Maine. Um, I don't know what story to tell there. Um, in other states, I think it was more straightforward. In North Carolina, Tom Tillis was up for re-election against Cal Cunningham. Cunningham was involved in a scandal, but he seemed to be leading through the polls. But the, I think the Senate vote there is pretty much mirroring the presidential vote. There were people who voted Trump Tillis, and there were people who voted Biden Cunningham. And if Biden wins the state, Cunningham will be close, but probably not quite there. Um, so it was, a, it was a disappointing night for Democrats. They had fielded some strong candidates. Some of them raised insane amounts of money, like Jamie Harrison in South Carolina, who was running against Lindsey Graham, Amy McGrath, who was on a quixotic bid to undo <laughs> Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. You know, they were raising 75 to $100 million. In, in South Carolina, there are only 4 million voters. So to raise $100 million, you could just give each person 25 bucks and the result would be the same. Um, yeah, I, th I think every state has a slightly different story. Um, we don't, I don't think we know what the story is just yet or how to put all those things together, but uh, we'll, we'll wait on Georgia because it has two elections going on, which could actually lead to two runoffs in January, just before the, new, before the electoral votes are read and the new president sworn in later that month. We don't know whether Biden assuming he wins, we'll have a Democratic Senate and be able to do some more things uh, than he can do now or whether he will be working with Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi for the next two years. Kind of speaking on how, even though it, you know, it seems like some things are shaking out in the Democrats' favor, other things may be a bit of a disappointment. It seems like this election wasn't the repudiation of President Trump that a lot of Democrats were really, really hoping for. Um, and a lot of that seems to be in part because the president is doing a lot better with non-white voters than we expected. And uh, as early results are starting to show, especially amongst um, Latinx voters. So can you talk a little bit on why you think this is, or, or if you have any initial takes or analysis on why this is, or it, or, or why you think President Trump is doing better with non-white voters than expected? Yeah, it's a really interesting question coming out of this election. Uh, we don't know yet for sure. You know, the exit polls we have are still preliminary and they're going to be adjusted to actually match the results once we have the final results. 
But I agree that the first look at them and the, and the pre-election polling we were seeing showed Trump running better among African-Americans and Hispanics than he had in 2016 or than, than Mitt Romney had in 2012. Uh, he certainly made a play for black voters in particular. He opened offices, uh, including one in downtown Milwaukee that were aimed at winning over black voters. He talked explicitly in his rallies about what he had done for, for black and Hispanic voters, particularly focusing on the unemployment rate, which had gone down for everyone during his first three years, but more so for blacks and Hispanics. Uh, if you remember the nationwide Super Bowl ad that the Trump campaign ran, I think it was around halftime of that game. Maybe he ran a couple of them. That ad was sort of the, you know, the opening story of his campaign and it also targeted non-white voters. So he certainly made a play for them, but most people scoffed at it because it didn't seem sincere. It didn't have the follow through that you might expect in terms of policy. And other Republican candidates had made efforts at winning at least some black and Hispanic votes and trying to hold down the margins for Democrats and hadn't done so well. There is a gender gap going on within both the black and Hispanic community. Trump is doing better among black men and Hispanic men than he is among uh, women in those categories. And that's true for whites as well, but the gap is bigger there. So there's, there's something happening that's sort of the intersection of race, ethnicity, and gender that I don't have my finger on just yet. Um, you know, I, th I think there were some initiatives that people could point to that benefited folks in that in those communities. Um, the First Step Act, which uh, a number of advocates on both sides of the aisle, including Trump, had pushed through that reformed the criminal justice system in some ways, was a, a kind of overture to African Americans and was especially welcome in that community. Um, so there may be particular policy things like that that have worked. Um, I don't know. I think I, I'm going to be eager to see more data coming out of this election to see whether there's a generational divide. You know, for example, older African Americans, I thought were really in league with Joe Biden, had warm feelings towards him, especially because he had served with Barack Obama. Um, and so maybe it's younger, non-white male voters who are really driving it for Trump. And if their turnout was up, that would be helpful. So I, I think it's an interesting storyline. I just don't have the conclusion to that storyline just yet. I'm interested to hear what you think going forward, some of the like reckonings the parties are going to have to face. Maybe instead of like predicting what might happen, we can kind of look at some ways that parties have dealt with losses in the in, in recent years. Like uh I don't know, what maybe what do you have what kind of historical things can we draw on that parties are going to reckon with post election? Boy, losing parties are so interesting <laughs> because they spend four years beating themselves up and trying to figure out what went wrong and then steering in a new direction. And sometimes the new directions no better or it's just different, <laughs> but, but not worse or better. Uh, one of the fun examples of this is after 2012 when Republicans lost to Barack Obama, they were so surprised that they had been defeated for two elections in a row and they'd won, they lost several popular votes in a row. And there's really a sense in the party that they were going to be the minority party for a long time. Uh, Reince Priebus, who was chair of the Republican National Committee, Wisconsinite, helped write a postmortem report after that election that described what they needed to do 
And two of the important recommendations were to soften their harsh approach on immigration, to help win over Hispanic voters in places like Florida and Texas, and to make more better and more appealing pitches to female voters, groups that they were losing badly, but these are part of the rising electorate, which is gonna dominate votes. And they nominated Donald Trump instead in 2016. They could have nominated someone like Jeb Bush, who would have been exactly inside that model. Uh, Spanish speaker from Florida, you know, moderate establishment, uh, not threatening to, to groups on the other side of the aisle, uh, but they went for Donald Trump instead and it worked. So, <laughs> um, you know, Democrats did a lot of soul searching after losing to Trump and they didn't write a report, but wow, there were a lot of conversations about, should we have been more aggressive? Should we be more liberal? Should we nominate an outsider? And so you get people like Pete Buttigieg and Kamala Harris, and you know, candidates you wouldn't normally see in the mix because they all had a different story about what had gone wrong. Um, you know, I don't know if, if Republicans lose this presidential election, I don't know that they will view it as something going wrong exactly because it's going to be close. It's not a blowout. Uh, they didn't give up much ground in the Congress. They've not given up much ground in state legislatures. It's not a terrible result if you're a president in a pandemic with a contracting economy and you kind of narrowly lose a presidential election. As a party, you might not say we're fundamentally flawed. You might say, oh, that was ba a bad experience, but we'll come right back and Biden will be 80 something years old and he's not gonna be running and it'll be a new day. Uh, I, I am really curious to see whether the future Republican party is Trumpian or it reverts to something else or it goes in a new direction. I think there's sort of three ways this could go. One is it, it remains Trump's party the way it is now. And so you get people like his family members running as candidates or kind of dominating the leadership of the party uh, or you know some of the Tea Party types who are coming out of the Congress end up continuing to be leaders in the party. That's possible. Uh, it could go back to the Republican Party we thought it was before, the kind of Mitt Romney, John McCain style, the Bushes. I think that's very unlikely. Most of those people have been purged from the party, have left office. Jeff Flake and you know those sorts of um, more establishment Republicans, mostly gone. And they've been fighting Trump uh, over the last few years. The other approach I think is maybe more likely is that the party turns towards a younger um, slightly more diverse and more kind of heartland party in 2024. A kind of Scott Walker model, um, younger working class, you know, Josh Hawley, Nikki Haley, Marco Rubio, Ben Sass, those are the people who are already running <laughs> for the nomination now. And my gosh, they're 30 years younger than him in some cases. And their policies are not wildly different, but it's a very different style of governing. You know, they're not gonna be tweeting the way he is. They aren't. So I, I think that's the more likely path, but I think it does depend on where this ultimately comes out in 2020. And there will be differences of opinions among Republicans as to whether it, you know, we take our lumps and move on and it was a strange year, or um, if, this, if, if Trump really contributed to this and we need to stop being a Trump kind of party. But I, I think the Trump elements will remain. They, they're not, they're not gonna be 
you know, totally exiled from the party. It's just whether they, it continues to be mainly a Trump style operation or that just ends up being one of the factions that's present. It's going to be fun to watch. Mm -hmm. And speaking of things that were, I'll put it entertaining or captivating, I shouldn't say maybe captivating to watch uh, coming from the president last or on election night, President Trump declared victory uh, and since then has been making legal threats to try and stop the counting of votes in certain states and has been also insisting on Twitter and other places that not only has he won the election, but that the election is rigged against him. And as a result, neat action needs to be taken immediately in order to prevent the further counting of votes. Um, just, to, just to put this in the broadest way possible, what do you make of this? What were your, what were, what, what was your initial reaction and feeling when you first saw his election night speech? And then what has been your sentiments towards his actions since? Well, I think his statements over the last two days are not surprising. They're consistent with what he has said about the election system, even from the time of his victory in 2016. You might remember he alleged that there were millions of illegal uh, non-citizens voting in places like California, that the system was rigged against him, and that's why he didn't win the popular vote. Uh, he's, he's stuck on that as a concern. And then as this year has ramped up and voters have moved towards voting by mail so dramatically, he has disparaged that process and has said a number of things that are not true. Most of what he said this week about the election is not true. Uh, claiming victory uh, looks like he's lost the popular vote and probably the electoral college vote. The process of counting those votes is working just as the law said it would. And as election officials announced, we knew it would take a while. We knew that ballots in some states were allowed to come in after election day, but actually most of the ballots that are being counted are ones that arrived before election day. And they're mostly the same rules that let him win four years ago. So it's, you know, it's opportunism. Um, take Wisconsin as a test case. Four years ago, he lost Wisconsin by 20,000 votes. Uh, Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, requested a, a recount of the state. And he said that was silly and frivolous and she paid for it and, and the state did it and, and verified his valid victory. This time he's lost the state by 20,000. Now he's calling for a recount. Nothing has changed. You know, Although there were lawsuits in Wisconsin this year, in the end, the election rules were pretty much the same rules they were four years ago. Same absentee balloting rules, same voter ID requirements, same voter registration rules, very little. Just the result moved a couple percentage points <laughs> away from him. And he now has a different attitude. So I, I think it's harmful to spread misinformation from someone who's the elected national leader and leader of a national political party. Um, it's concerning when people accept his statements without consulting the facts or wondering what his motivations might be. Uh, it's led to a lot of inconsistent views about things <laughs> around the country. Uh, for example, he's now he or his allies have filed lawsuits in a few states, um, 
but the arguments they're making in those lawsuits are not consistent from one state to another. For example, wanting to stop the counting in Michigan, but to continue the counting in Arizona. Um, claiming that election observers were not permitted to see the process in those states, even though where there was a bit of a protest happening in Detroit, there were something like 250 election observers inside the room from the Republican Party. So, you know, and in places like Milwaukee and Philadelphia, the counting of the ballot is actually streamed online live via video. So anyone can watch it who wants to know what's happening. It's pretty boring and <laughs> it's following the rules. Um, it's a bunch of paperwork, um, but the rules were all known in advance and we, you know, we play by them. So un unfortunately to answer your question with a long answer, his statements this week have been consistent with his approach toward election policies and towards rules generally. You know, there's, there's some psychology to do here maybe that's beyond my expertise, but I do remember someone saying that when he was a business person doing real estate in New York for all those years and in the entertainment industry, his task was to get around the rules. If he wanted to build a skyscraper, he didn't want to deal with the zoning laws, he wanted to circumvent those, you know, try to make a deal. That was what led to success in that environment. Now he's in government and as the chief executive officer of the United States, the job should be to enforce and abide by the rules. But he's in his 70s and has never done that and is, has not changed. So it, it becomes now very serious and problematic that we're in the midst of resolving a presidential election and he's continuing to have that kind of stance. Thank you for that. Um, I think it was really, really useful to hear those details about what that litigation has actually looked like, um, because that was one thing that I was asking myself, just how, how that would work out or how that legal argument would even arise. But one thing that we've been kind of talking about consistently with a lot of our guests on this podcast related to the way that President Trump has been handling and continues to handle the results of the election is the potential for violence as a result of from either the uh, you know either supporters of the president or supporters of uh, well I'll say antagonists to the president um, regarding the legitimacy of the election and fortunately it seems like on election day we didn't see any violence or at least I didn't I didn't see any reports of any kind of violence related to the election on election day itself but of course there is still this this propensity that if there are these continued calls from the president that the election is illegitimate and that it has been stolen, there are concerns that this will lead to some kind of violence or disruption. Are you concerned about the potential for violence in the continued fallout from this election? Or do you think that what we've seen now maybe should leave us more optimistic that things will remain peaceful? Uh, can I say both? I'm concerned and optimistic. <laughs> that's, that's been my attitude through this whole election. Um, election day was remarkably smooth, as you said. There were no hiccups of any significance, very few lines around the country, no hacking of devices or confrontations at the polls that I'm aware of. Um, so let's be thankful that our election officials and poll workers pulled all that off in the midst of a pandemic. And then on election night, no armed confrontations, no 
damage, no rioting of any consequence. There were stories of you know businesses boarding up their windows and militias taking up arms and none of that materialized. Now there have been a couple of these manufactured uh, protests in, in uh, Detroit and in Phoenix of uh, Trump allies you know, chanting outside of a counting facility. They're chanting different things actually in the two cities. One is stop the vote and one is count all the votes. Um, that's, that, that's been threatening to the people inside. In, in Phoenix, they've actually you know, locked the place up and are concerned. Um, so I'm, I'm worried about that as the days goes on, as go, days go on, people's patience becomes thin and they get tired and, and uh, feel threatened. So there is that worry, but it, it's really been wonderful so far that the American public has been well-behaved and patient. Um, maybe the pandemic has taught us that, <laughs> that we, we need to wait for things to resolve. Um, maybe the media did enough of a job of warning people this was going to take a while. And, um, and maybe the fact that it was close meant that you know people were just going to wait and watch and, and see how things came out. We're not out of the gate yet. Um, we, you know, there, there isn't a certified vote in any state yet. We don't know who's won the electoral college with any convincingness. So uh, something could happen, but I'm, but I'm hopeful that it will continue to progress in a pretty peaceful fashion. One kind of related question that I'd like to ask, you know, commenting on the length of our election system, if you were, say, in charge of the presidential election in the United States, and you could totally reform it however you wanted to just make whatever you considered to be an improvement to the system, what changes would you make to our electoral system if you had complete discretion to do what you wanted with it. Well, that's a big promotion going from full <laughs> professor to election dictator. There are a few things I think that are kind of, for me, obvious low hanging fruit that I'd want to fix. Uh, one is I would replace the electoral college with a national popular vote. That could be just a straight up national popular vote or I think even better would be some kind of ranked choice voting because the ranked choice would invite more parties to the table. So I would hope we would get something more like multi-party democracies you find elsewhere, even one or two more parties. So we're a little more in the Canada, UK side of things uh, would be welcome. And with a national popular vote, we would not have all the games that we're playing this week of figuring out is Georgia gonna flip and even college students wouldn't have to think, do I want to vote back home in Illinois or do I want to vote in Wisconsin? Where's my vote gonna matter more? It would matter equally. It wouldn't matter where you voted from. Uh, it would matter equally. So I, I would advocate some kind of national popular vote. Um, I think just about every voter in the US now has a paper ballot or a paper backup, but there are about 10% of voters this year who do not have that, who are voting only on an electronic machine. That does not meet basic secu security standards. So I would immediately mandate with my dictator powers, uh, paper ballot or paper ballot backup for everyone because that improves confidence and it provides for accountability and auditability of the election. I think more uniformity across the states in election practices would not be a bad thing. You know, we have different registration rules, different registration deadlines, different absentee ballot rules. Some states you can register on election day, other states not. Um, you know, let me just give you an example of the range of things. Texas at one end of the continuum had a registration deadline of early October. So if you were not registered a month ago, 
but you became interested in the campaign in the last three weeks, say around the time of the debates, uh, you're out of luck. There's no online voter registration in Texas. There's no same day voter registration in Texas. There's a, a fairly strict voter ID requirement in Texas. You cannot vote absentee in Texas unless it's by an accepted excuse, which does not include COVID. So pretty tough rules. Uh, you take on the other hand, a place like Oregon where every registered voter is getting a ballot in the mail automatically. They can mail it back. They can leave it in a drop box. They can register on the same day. Um, no, no hard ID requirement. That, that's just a very different experience for the voter in one part of the country versus another. I think some local variations fine to deal with the needs of particular communities. A big city like New York probably has different needs for its voters than a rural community like Montana. But I, I would push for more uniformity in the options available to voters and the experience. This is one big country, but it, a patchwork of these 50 very different sets of rules. Um, I, I think same day or automatic voter registration is also a no-brainer. It's really taken off across the states, red states and blue states both realize it actually saves them money. It modernizes the system. It keeps the rolls up to date. There are, I think, 21 states or something like that that have election day registration now. Um, that would just be a wonderful thing across the states. And if the states were actually communicating with one another, then they could track voters as they move from one state to another. And that would reduce fraud and increase security and, and franchise voters. So there, there are some easy things like that uh, that I think would be worthwhile easy and that they're, they're, they're easy to see as good ideas to me. They're very difficult to implement. Absolutely. Well, as we're wrapping up, is there anything else you want to add, um, you know, as we're continuing to take in election coverage? There are so many things we could add. I, I'll mention one remarkable thing this year, and that is the level of voter turnout. We won't know for some time, but it looks like somewhere between 150 and maybe 160 million Americans voted in this election. Uh, that's going to put turnout in the range of the mid 60s as a, as a turnout rate. That's pretty bad compared to other developed democracies, but it's pretty good for the United States and would be one of the highest turnout rates, uh, maybe the highest in a century, really the highest in the modern era that we know where women have the right to vote and the Voting Rights Act exists and senators are directly elected. In that era, uh, this will set a record just the way the 2018 midterms set a record. So there has been a really impressive amount of voter participation in these last two years on both the Democratic side and the Republican side. It's not advantaging one party. Both sides are cranked up and engaged and hopefully in a peaceful, productive way, not in a hostile, conflictual way. So that's, I think, a terrific sign. It's a good sign for young people like students who are just coming in to the electorate and being eligible for the first time at a time when there's a lot of engagement. Hopefully that habit will stick with young people as you move through the life cycle. So um, that's, that's definitely one of the bright lights, especially for that to happen in the midst of a pandemic when so many people's lives are disrupted um, to see 150 million of them or more vote in a presidential election, including people who live in states that aren't very important in the Electoral College, uh, they still wanted to come out and express their views. So that's a wonderful thing. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Burden. Thanks for having me. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 
1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely for now. <laughs>